Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin, in which I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of ideas that define our time, of the history that we are told. Today I'll be speaking to British neuroscientist Professor Sophie Scott, but first, a little word from our sponsor. Me, I'm our sponsor. Uh, come and see my rebirth tour. Tickets are available. Oxford, 10th of May. I live near there. That's going to be crazy. Southport, oh, it's a trip away. It's going to be chaos. So Oxford's on the 10th of May. Southport's on the 23rd of May. But you can get tickets to those shows and any shows by going to russellbrand.com. If you like this show, or even if you don't like it, please subscribe and review it to I, uh, on iTunes. We only want five-star reviews. I'm desperate to get myself to the top of the charts. I want the one and two uh, spots on the charts. But bloody S Club 7 and Serial and a whole host other things. In fact, Colin Murray's uh, podcast, I'm a, I'm a fan of that because I like Colin Murray a lot. So listen to that as well. I mean, I don't really care what difference does it make. I mean, there's more to life than books, you know, but not much more, as the great Morrissey said. to introduce my guest, a woman, a professor, a person who's already been coquettish with me. <laughs> professor Sophie Scott is a British neuroscientist and senior fellow at University College London, researching the neuroscience of voices, speech and laughter. She's known for her public engagement work, including performing stand-up comedy and was featured in BBC Radio 4's programme, The Life Scientific. Her research investigates the neural basis for vocal communication, how our brains process the information, speech and voices, and how our brains control the production of our voice. It's made me really self-conscious of my voice that has now sophie professor thank you professor sophie sophie professor thank you for professor coming here and uh doing this interview with me i'm very grateful thank you very much for inviting me i saw you on uh, jimmy carr i'm a, a a fan and indeed friend of jimmy's and i see he done a horizon where he talked about the neuro the neurology of laughter can you just uh, surmise what you're doing on that show because it will help me, uh, me to do a show with you now <laughs> Uh, they came to me because I'm one of the few people researching laughter in the UK. If you if you go onto um, the major database of science papers and you do a search on emotion, expression and fear, you get back over 4,000 published papers on fear. And if you do a search on uh, emotion, expression, laughter, you get back 150 papers. There are just no papers in it. There's no research going on into it. And so I was lucky. That meant that there was nobody else they could ask about how, you know, how and why we laugh. Um and that's something I've been looking at. I've been looking at and from a perspective of how, how we communicate with each other. And I got interested in positive emotions in communication. And as soon as you start doing that, you find that laughter is just weird. It's everywhere. It's continuously found in conversation. People do it much, much more than they think they do. And we coordinate it really nicely in conversation. And interestingly, if you ask people about laughter, they'll ask what makes you laugh, when do you laugh, they'll talk about jokes and comedy and humour. But actually, out in the wild, most laughter is just happening in conversations and people aren't laughing at jokes, although we do laugh at jokes and comedy. People are laughing to show that they know each other and like each other and understand each other. Well, you mean the social wild, like us lot, humans, monkey, human, primate people. Exactly. So, like, yeah, I do notice that. I listen out for that sound. One of the aspects of of, of laughter, humour, comedy and communication I'm interested in is the political discourse. John Cleese says a brilliant thing, I wonder if you're aware, about uh, seriousness and solemnity. He said, like, people prohibit the use of humour in particular 
areas of the public sphere because of its potency and its ability to disrupt. And I've always found it interesting that, you know, like with the emergence of political figures like Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, and indeed Donald Trump, people that are sort of use a different type of rhetoric, a kind of accessibility and a kind of humour. But of course, humour has always been a part of the political discourse. If You know, they, they make jokes all the time in Parliament and in Congress. Mm. They use humour to make people like them. And I always think the um, some of the idioms around comedy are interesting. Make people laugh. It's a form of control. What have you got to add to that load of nonsense? <laughs> well, I think you're right. It's an incredibly nuanced behaviour in adulthood. And it... It's interesting to think about its roots because its roots lie in play and play behaviour. That's what happens when babies first laugh, when their parents tickle them or do peekaboo with them. That Mm. all came out wrong. Play peekaboo with them. Then it's a response to a playfulness. There's no joke there. There's no bigger structure. It's a, you know, Mm. I understand that you're engaging with me in this fun way and it's absolutely basic to pri- well, primates mammals it's a ma- that's a mammal behavior play we understand that there are strata of behavior so there's one behavior where if, we, if i said i'm very offended by what you've just said on this podcast you would go you would recognize that as oh my god this is serious and then if i not really you're absolutely gorgeous then yes. there's a sort of a sense of relief yeah so like there's the acknowledgement that there are frequencies you're saying and these frequencies are vocally expressed but they're neurologically understood and are they demonstrable is it like something that's happening in play that in neurologically that's not present in serious intercommunication that's a good question and i don't know if I, can, <laughs> I don't know if i can give you an equally good answer we know that um play is incredibly important to mammals as they're developing all mammals play and even if you grow up to be a completely asocial predator mammal then you will who's be, that <laughs> that would be like a tiger uh yeah or a cheetah <laughs> yeah big cats um or and even no, I'm going to explain this really badly. But it, even if you grow up to be a very frightening mammal that never plays, who are they? Um, well, all big cats. Um, what about that that gorgeous gorilla with nice eyes that I saw on Gogglebox? Well, gorillas are a good example of they're not predators; they're vegetarians. But they are they continue to play throughout their lifetime, like humans do, like otters do, like dogs do. Most mammals play in juvenile period, and that's when they're learning. We've got these massive brains. We have this extended period of being juveniles when we're training those big brains up and this is all mammals and we we learn mostly through play not entirely but that's one of the structures and then in adulthood most mammals stop and a handful carry on like us dogs otters other primates doing this playful behavior and what you find is that a behavior like laughter starts having a relatively simple role it's social bonding it's playfulness and then as we get older it becomes more and more complex till by the time you're an adult and you're hearing laughter, it's almost like a hall of mirrors of interpretation. Somebody could be laughing because they're helplessly laughing. They could be laughing because they're embarrassed, because they're frightened, because they're trying to cover up being angry, because they're trying to make somebody like them, because they're in pain. Mm. All these different reasons why laughter starts to appear around you. And when you're in an interaction with somebody, you're normally pretty good, normally pretty good at reading that. It's often when you're you can hear laughter going on it's part of something that's maybe nothing to do with I hate you. that yeah <laughs> What's, what are they laughing at listen to them laughing and it seems those pigs <laughs> they don't even those racist me. pigs what are they laughing at <laughs> what's going on well actually or even worse you think they're laughing at you you yes. know because that's another thing am I included in this laughter am I excluded from the laughter so it's, it's you're always thinking about it it's always meaningful even if it's got apparently nothing to do with you you will pay some attention to laughter and try and work out why it's going on because it is such a meaningful behaviour it's interesting that laughter is vocal but non-verbal 
incredible that it's sort of it's sort of super linguistic. It's beyond language. That like that it's what you look to to communicate in situations where language isn't of use to you to try to connect to people through laughter. Absolutely, and and in this, it sits with a set of things called nonverbal emotional expressions, which are more like animal calls than they are like speech. So when I'm talking to you now, I'm doing something no other well, no other animal can do in nature. I make you know we are when we talk to each other, producing this incredible sound that starts down at our rib cage and we're making sounds at our voice box and then we shape that with our tongue and our lips and our jaw and that's this gives us this sound literally unparalleled in nature and then when we are in a really pretty extreme emotional state we don't bother with that at all and we just squeeze air out and we make screams and grunts and sounds all laughter and they're really much more basic sounds Hmm. I listen out sometimes when I'm talking to people to hear the sort of noises they make that aren't words. Like sometimes people go, uh-huh, or something like that. I think, what, the, what are you doing? What are you just up to there when you make that little groan? It's weird, isn't it? It is odd. And I know what are we signalling? Are we signalling availability, power, status? What's going on, Professor? There's a, there's a rather unfortunately named term called back-channeling, which means... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I know it very well, I'm afraid. <laughs> I began back-channeling on my 17th birthday. <laughs> he never <laughs> called again. <laughs> what it means is people show that they're listening. So they tend to make little noises. They might make laughs, but they also make uh-huh, or, mm, or uh-huh, uh, all sorts of noises. Just like I'm here and I'm engaged with you. Mm. It's like eye contact. I'm using it to indicate that I'm listening. I might also use it to indicate I'm ready to speak too. Also, you know, we, we don't sit and receive messages and then start emitting them at somebody else. We, we speak to be understood and we listen to show that we're following. And that's making funny noises can be part of that. It's extraordinary what's happening beyond the understood signifiers within language. Is it, you know, whenever you hear that thing of like, oh, 90% of communication is nonverbal, I always think, how can it be? If someone's doing a speech with a guy and we're going to be raising taxes by this amount, you're not thinking, well, I don't like those eyebrows. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you're sort of thinking the, the, the information's what's going across, isn't it? It definitely is, but it's, it's interesting that as soon as you have a person talking to you, there is never just the words, there's always a voice. Yes. And you do get a lot of other information from that voice. Um, I was thinking about this this morning and I was listening to the the Sex Pistols and, the, you know, oh, God Save the Queen. And that came out, everyone's like, oh, God, this is so shocking. And they keep going, oh, no, we love the Queen. And they keep saying that. I don't think they mean it. I don't think <laughs> oh, they love yeah, the Queen at all. Oh, yeah, we love her. Yes. Right. <laughs> now. Yeah, that's a loaded voice. Exactly. And that means, it seems, you know, I was a... I was just you know, peripubescent at that time. It seemed incredibly threatening because they definitely, I'm pretty certain they don't love the Queen at all. And it was all coming from how it's phrased and how it's being used and all the sound that's contributing to the noise that they're making. So I've, I came into this area working on speech. I thought I worked on language. That was what I would Ooh, tell people I did. Language is and it's, speech. Well, but even, even that was um, made... When I was studying scanning brains, and you could find all these brain areas that were responding to uh, the words that you understand and all the linguistic stuff there. But you also get all these other brain areas that don't care at all about words, but they absolutely care about someone saying it. And, of course, they're always there. If there's someone speaking, there's a voice. And as soon as there's a voice, there's another channel of information that you are processing really strongly. And the brain cares at least as much about that as it does about the words in terms of like activation. You're so right, actually, because if I think about this, if you were to suddenly be turned into an austere 
male from like sort of the Ukraine who was just saying the exact same content to me in this way where Russell of course laughter is used to bond. <laughs> I've been having a totally different experience. Of course there's all sorts of physical and aesthetic data but that, that what is contained in the voice is communicating in a powerful way so the reason that I didn't understand oh 90% of information is non-verbal is because I'm precisely unaware of the way I'm being affected by sound because we don't know how to categorise it. I mean, its language is about what's being not said. It's about distinction. I'm saying this and not this. And it's easy to categorise and understand. Less easy, I suppose, is these aspects of communication that are non, not vocabulary, super, super linguistic. Absolutely. And they don't directly influence what you're the words necessary that you're saying, although they can interact with it. But if, as soon as you as soon as you hear a voice, you've got a person, you've got a good idea of a gender, you've got a good shot at an age, um, socioeconomic status, geographical origins, mood, health. That's I like mood. <laughs> what mood was that you're in? <laughs> mood. <laughs> very much. <laughs> power. <laughs> and it's also um, aspirational. People talk in a way that they want people to see them as. It, I, when I... Being on the phone to my mum, I talk like my mum for about half an hour afterwards and, you know, love my mum. I don't really want to sound like her, but I'm showing all this stuff about our relationship as soon as I start talking to her. And all of us do that all the time. I'm talking differently to you now because I'm trying to project a particular what is it? to the world. I'm hoping it's competent scientist. I'm hoping. I'm probably landing on idiots. And I don't know. so much more, <laughs> Sophie Scott, and so much more. Um Oh, like what we're projecting onto the world and the way that we want to be received. And is sort of laughter somehow a supplement to that or a disruption to that? I think it's it can be both. So a lot of the time it's something that you're actively using to try and affect interactions. So here's an example. I was on the tube last week and not particularly full tube, coming away from Heathrow and there was a suitcase with no one anywhere near it. And I Ooh. suddenly realised I was unattended suitcase. So... And there were empty seats by it. So the family oh, no. had been, you know, oh, no, I'm going to have to say something. So, OK, right. Excuse me, down the, you know, everyone, people I'm with are going, oh, she's going to do it. So, excuse me, is this anybody's suitcase? And this woman right at the other end of the carriage goes, oh, yes, it's mine. And, and she came down. And I, she was going, oh, sorry, I, I hadn't realised seats had become available. And I was going, oh, don't worry. And we were both laughing to kind of yeah. go, oh, this is OK. It's all right. I'm not telling you off. No one's cross with you. It's mm. all all right here. You're you, signalling you know, to each other, this is cool now. This is absolutely But we fine. all have the external referent that an unattended bag could mean death. Yes. And it's it, in that context, you, I mean, I have seen people get really told off for unattended luggage. So, it, you know, we're both trying to make it clear we're not doing that. And she's also very sorry. But in fact, that is a really nuanced use of laughter that people, that, that was not helpless laughter i was not in any sense amused no. i was doing it entirely to try and make it better and less threatening it, it was an expression of a, a kind of relief of course right there's sort of like because the pro, there's the process of course if you're going oh this isn't a terrorist attack on the tube but also that your social interaction has not failed it's not been misinterpreted that you've yep. successfully communicated oh i'm another concerned person yeah we're all good here and if people if that goes wrong of course laughter can suddenly be really inappropriate and you do encounter situations where people will be like what well, you think this is a joke? You're laughing at me. Oh, I hate that. Like in uh, Goodfellas yeah. when Joe Pesci does it. Oh, it's an awful moment. It's a, it makes your blood run cold. I it, hate that. It does happen. That happens to me quite a lot. That's basically a continuum in my life. That's sort of like the rhythm section of my life is people <laughs> going, what, you're trying to be funny, mate? 
What's that then? And it's that, awful. It's interesting that it actually, in the rhetoric of, uh, of violent conflict, in which I'm an expert, like the the sort of like, do you think, what are you trying to be funny? Do you think you're funny? Like that's a sort of like a bit of language that comes up a lot, isn't it? Yep. Because it's undercutting, I suppose. Because humour is disrupting. The, say there's a standard frequency of like the banal exchange of information with whatever internet personal inflections you have as your default, then humour is subverting that. Like, oh, right, I'm in here to, to introduce some sort of jagged spikes to all of this. And then another person for power can go, no, this isn't funny. Oh, I don't like that feeling at all. I've made myself nervous just talking about it. And quite a lot of the behaviours that we do, um, like laughter and yawning, blinking, are, are contagious. Most of the blinks you do, you don't need oh to do. God. You're blinking. Unnecessary you... blinks. We're blinking our lives away pointlessly. <laughs> blink, blink, blink. <laughs> if you watch a baby, they don't they do not do this because we actually we learn contagious behaviours. We learn to pick them up from oh. people and, and laughter's a really big one. We I do watch my laugh. baby. I do watch her. She don't blink very much. She's yeah. actually bloody exhausting. She won't do any blinking. But with laughter, with the baby, I notice that, yeah, well, if I go to her and go, I like that and stuff she loves all that yeah she loves sort of monster play and biting yep. and all that not hard not not aggressive but like it seems like that there is a function and it's and when i think about what is my Im, Im, impetus to I- initiate that behavior is recognizing she doesn't yet have language but i want to feel bonded to her and i want to feel closeness to her and i want to touch her and stuff so that play is serving the function of uh, uh of our co- reiterating and compounding our connection Absolutely is. And there's very interesting. It is quite striking that um, we laugh so early. You know, we we can cry pretty soon as soon as we're born. You know, humans are born about three months too soon Mm. because of our massive heads. And then around the time we would be born, we start laughing. So probably it should have been there right from the outset. And then ages later, we start making other sounds. And it's very interesting that the second thing that comes in is this incredibly potent, positive vocalisation. Because babies, babies don't catch laughs from adults, but the adults laugh when the babies laugh and you start teaching them about it. It starts becoming an interaction. And there's very nice evidence that well before babies are l- linguistic in any sense that they can speak at all, they're probably understanding a lot, but they can't do anything vocal, they will pay attention to their parents' laughter and they will start doing things to make their parents laugh precisely because of this communicative link that it's giving you and this interaction that it gives you. So long before you're having conversations babies are using laughter as actively as you're using laughter now to to drive interactions with you more efficiently in the case of my baby and me she's a very funny child so like Sophie, what i'm thinking then is that there is power in laughter there is power in laughter as a form of communication uh, and therefore comedy there is power in it so like i wanted to one of the things we've done some pre-production here and that's very rare for us we've got uh, like examples of politicians using humor and uh, i wonder if we can analyze this as part of our podcast so the first person that's using humor is a sort of a a comedy staple of the british political world it's boris johnson using humor to communicate we export tea to china bikes to holland boomerangs uh to australia sands to saudi arabia at least we we did export sands to saudi arabia i think we still export much sands to saudi arabia but we do still export wine to italy and i'm delighted to say Nigel Farage to America, uh, where, he, where, he may, where he may he may remain. Now, Boris Johnson, I think, is a really good example because I think he's 
like one of the things that humor does is it i think signals an awareness of another seam of communication like if you're like if you're using comedy you're sort of going like you're saying like i know that on one level we're having this discourse like i.e there boris johnson's giving a speech in like some sort of context like you know like sort of it sounds like probably a business and economic speech he's doing like selling sand to the arabs which is a, a racist trope actually but he found a way of uh, of sort of taking out the most obvious racism and making it dog whistle racism one of his great skills actually boris johnson and, and uh, but it's like he's he's being deliberately humorous what do you think boris johnson is doing there um, if I'm absolutely honest, I think Boris Johnson has very carefully cultivated a kind of clownish persona to cover up a tremendously, um, uh, pow- you know, powerfully interested in success politician. He's, yeah. There was a very interesting essay by Jonathan Coe pointing out that Boris Johnson didn't used to be funny. He used to wow. be just like a posho in the 90s. It was this, you know, here's this, here's this another privileged individual from Eton. And he was on Have I Got News For You? Mm, I remember that. And the first time he was on, um, Ian Hislop kept having a go at him about a phone call he'd had with a journalist called, trying to, someone called Darius Guppy. He was trying yeah, to get friends, someone, yeah. didn't he? He was trying to get the details out of Johnson. And didn't, yeah. Johnson doesn't come out of it very well. And Hislop just would not come away from it. Kept coming back to it, kept coming back to it. And in the end, I think Paul Merton, because he got a bit bored, made a joke about it. And that was funny, and the audience laughed, and it somehow simultaneously got Boris Johnson off the hook, and somehow the laughter stuck to him, not to Paul Merton, who'd actually made the joke. That was like Batman when Batman was in that cave of bats <laughs> and became Batman. <laughs> hold on, a, hold on a minute, I'm funny, man. If I'm funny, I don't ever have to reveal my Machiavellian self-interest and huge political ambitions. I can just laugh my way to the top, or at least to the middle. And that's certainly, well, that's, Jonathan Coe makes quite a good argument for that, which I think contains a lot of weight. And it's certainly, he points out that the laughter kind of surrounding Boris Johnson, he understands very well. He knows it's not a sign that people are thinking deeply about his intentions. You know, mm. kind of, it becomes easy to treat him as a joke. And then he can... You, to a certain extent, and it's a double-edged sword, but you are licensed to do different things if people treat you as funny. Mm. And that works for you and it can work against you. And he's been very good at making it work for him. He really has because there's sort of things like, you know, those allegations about his private life that like, he sort of laughed his way out of. So lots of contentious decisions made while mayor. There's his sort of like his reversal out of this Brexit stuff. And now he's repositioning as a sort of attack dog for the Conservatives in this election with that. So if I noticed he said that he's got beautiful. I mean, he's obviously an incredibly intelligent man, brilliantly and expensively educated man. And when he sort of contrives an insult like mutton headed mugwump, like I think that's beautiful bit mm. of language. It's a really, really good attack and like all good comedy it's, it's got a sort of a specific revelation and a specific intent it's acerbic and lacerating piece of language that and and I, I think I, I feel that when he's doing that stuff that there's a, a great power in it like you know I don't think we've seen the summit of Boris Johnson's career and like mm. and what's happening across the water uh, it, it, it is an indication that there's a, this type of charm and charisma it, it, it is a useful way of attaining power. Jengo, can we put up an American one now just for the purposes of keeping some balance? Do Obama, he was well funny. And Bernie Sanders might run. I I like Bernie. Bernie's an interesting guy. Apparently, some folks really want to see a pot-smoking socialist in the White House. (laughs) We could get a third Obama term after all. (laughs) Could happen nice little joke there i mean that that's i mean that's a scripted 
joke obviously it's a very sort of uh like yeah sort of the i mean it's clear where it's going once he says pot smoking socialist is yeah you know he's playing on his own sort of like public awareness but so sort of, i think Bar- barack obama is an excellent politician in that he's statesmanly and humorous in a way that doesn't sort of dim- diminish his status i would say with like boris johnson he sort of pays a kind of an ethical price for his humor or do you think that's just his more perhaps more to do with his political stance i think sometimes and i i'm i could be being unfair here but the nigel farage joke there was basically Basically, uh, not funny, not funny, not funny. Isn't Nigel Farage funny? Mm. You know, and uh, we've, we've, you know, people laugh. Audience laughter is highly sophisticated. I don't need to tell you this, but people will laugh because Please they, do. you know, they, people are laughing as they do in conversations to show that they approve or they agree or they understand or they remember or they've noticed something. You know, they, as much as it is to do with amusement, and I'm definitely not saying it's not amusement, but. There's the, that Nigel Farage joke was a kind of like a here is a you know in the same way people up until recently used to produce it and there's Donald Trump in itself is a punchline now yeah. Nigel Farage is just a punchline whereas the Obama joke and I fully accept it may well have been written for him is self-depreciating and slightly more complex in terms of the structure of a joke. It's not just a, here's a funny thing, we'll laugh at that. Mm. Um, I may be biased by, as we all are, when we're appraising humour about personal feelings here about it. But I'm interested in Obama because... You know, vocally, he just, he's he's articulate and he uses rhetoric beautifully. He's a beautiful speaker and he's able of capable of dropping into humour at the right time mm. in the right way in a way that's done well. So he kind of excels in how he uses his voice and he's made humour part of that. Although one of the things he was also doing in that joke, and this is not to do, perhaps to do with your area of expertise or certainly not mine, but like he's also diminishing the seriousness of Bernie Sanders. And I imagine the point, the, the point that, I don't know when that speech was happening, but clearly it was the point when they were undetermined on who would be the candidate, Hillary Clinton or Bernie yeah. Sanders. And it's interesting that Sanders is at that point used as the punchline of a joke. Yeah. So like... I, I think that uh, you know, like, I'm very interested in the relationship between comedy and power, and I'm very interested as, as like someone that's been ridiculed for entering the public political sphere uh, out of a comedic background. How actually, in reality, the people in power often use comedy and humour to get what they want and to create the kind of impressions mm. that they want. Should we have a listen to Nigel Farage being funny now? Because he's, he's another politician that sort of, I, th- I think, you know, like you can't sort of, whether or not you agree with people's politics, is the, the, the power of their oratory and the, their ability to have an impact is something that sort of, you know, even in humour is something that we have to take seriously. And then we've got the Prime Minister. <laughs> or should I call him in this context, piggy in the middle. Now, obviously, that's a joke that, uh, that he's doing that when uh, David Cameron, as we know, the former prime minister, put his genitals into a pig's mouth. That's just the prime minister of a country putting his genitals in the mouth of a dead pig there. Um, so, like, um, Farage, I think, is an interesting case because, like, one of the things that humans being used for in all of these cases is, I'm like you, weird like one another, I'm not on the other side of some chasm of puppeteering you and yeah. using power. Yeah, there's a there's a sort of some element of sharing there. People won't if people don't agree with you or don't like you, they won't laugh. It's mm. that's you know, it's um Yeah, I hate that. That's <laughs> happened to me before. And it's it's certainly a you know, I can think of comedians, obviously not you, but I can think of comedians that I, I would never I just Thank I don't partic- uh, something about them I don't like them and I'm I can't imagine what they'd have to do to make me laugh. Now that's just me making a praise. It's literally, literally nothing to do with them. Entirely to do with my biases, but it will affect my behaviour around them. So I can appreciate, or you know, with Farage I can recognise the structure of that joke and how well it's gone down. But I'm still not smiling because, of, you know, again like voices, 
it's about who I want to be. I don't want to be part of that human. I don't want to be sharing that. But you're right. It, it, there's a strong element of sharing and agreement. Normally. Yes, that's how it's being used. I mean, because even the word communicator means creator of community, yeah. creating allegiances. You're yeah. communicating. We're not one. We are many. Yeah. We are bonded. But and and like I see Alan Moore, that uh, graphic artist, saying that you know the use of, like spelling that we spell that there's a magic in words. You can create feelings in another person through what you say. I think that this is a, a powerful and appealing idea to me. Um, and at this sort of time, I suppose it's sort of a, perhaps, is it a postmodern phenomena? I don't know. I'm not qualified to say. But we're sort of seeing an emergence of a different type of politician. And at its apex, I think, it, it is Donald Trump. And I'd like to sort of uh, talk about him and his use of humour and his ability to communicate. Because this is a thing that is it's sort of difficult to say, but I'll risk it anyway. Something about him I kind of like. I mean, he's personally attacked me. Like, you know, like literally I've got, we use it in my stand-up show, Rebirth. There's like him, like there's a bit of him going, Russell Brand, what an idiot. <laughs> like really sort of like naming me and attacking me. Like before he was president actually, but that's, you know, like, but um, it's I kind of, what I like about Donald Trump, there's a sentence that's not easy to finish, is that, that he's kind of, I like his kind of certainty and like uh, there's a sort of something I think quite likable about his ah, sort of shrugging. He always seems like he's shrugging something off, like ah, and I find it sort of interesting when things are so sort of because I suppose my particular take on politics is that there's a lot of concealment, a lack of transparency. Someone like Donald Trump, I sort of think well, there's a plainness, a sort of bovine obviousness that I'm rather enjoying that things are being revealed that shouldn't be and things are being concealed that shouldn't be like the top of his head let's have a let's have a listen to um let's have a listen to donald trump saying something hillary accidentally bumped into me and she very civilly said pardon me <laughs> this is the first time ever ever that hillary is sitting down and speaking to major corporate leaders and not getting paid for it. The media is even more biased this year than ever before, ever. Michelle Obama gives a speech and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. They think she's absolutely great. My wife, Melania, gives the exact same speech. <laughs> That's actually a good joke. That's the best joke, I think, because uh, that because he's the victim of it. That is so sort of self-effacing. I mean, that's uh, gosh, that's dangerous. Now, there's just been an argument, like so. The second one was obviously in front of Hillary Clinton. He criticised her again accurately, and you can say, of course, like you know, communicative skills become more important in a time when there's a lack of trust, a time where people, generally speaking, feel like that politics doesn't serve them, that democracy doesn't serve them. If someone turns up that's kind of affable or appealing in a way that's surprising it sort of has a particular impact what was there in, what do you think about that I, I, he certainly has he, has he has quite a strange voice because he doesn't mm. do a lot of the things that people kind of get pushed towards in a certainly for british um you know and, and that that has to be a proviso obviously I, I don't understand american accents in the same way but he doesn't sound schooled in communication Ooh. it doesn't sound like somebody's given him any insight into perhaps don't do that strange high-pitched thing when you're going for a joke but you know he's, he's got quite a high-pitched voice and he's mm. you know it's not it's, it's a not, bit nasal is there some 
restriction going on, yeah. isn't there? It's and it's quite a. I, I can't do it, but there, there it's got a quite a quite a limited range of prosody. He doesn't. What's that mean, prosody? Um, the music of your voice. Oh. Um, and we go in and out of fashions on liking that. If you remember back to. Um, um, when Neil Kinnock did that amazing speech about militant and, you know, the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council, and it's just a beautiful piece of music. It's just, it's an amazing speech, but the the the, the music of his voice is absolutely extraordinary. He is furious, ah. absolutely furious. And that's gone largely out of fashion. You don't find in UK political rhetoric that, that kind of use in the voice in that way. Because it sounds hysterical, I bet. Because I mean, it doesn't it sound like... managed, or managerial, bureaucratically. Like, if it's time to go, oh my God, yeah. what are we going to have to say about bloody ISIS? <laughs> They're terrifying. One of the things that came in with, um, with Tony Blair, and actually David Cameron fully did this as well, was that kind of like, well, we're just having a matey chat sort of Listen, quality. Yeah, I'm exactly, just yeah. talking to you now. This is because very... you can trust me. It is new Labour. Look, I'm just actually just saying stuff. Like, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it was sort of, it was, and my friend Adam Curtis says that it was like, you know, that that, like sort of Clinton Blair was the heralding of a sort of a managerial type of politics. We're just managers. What we are, we're like middle managers at work. You know, we're not sort of powerful demagogues. We're not sort of people that are kind of like, it's not like Mm. Adolf Hitler punching above his weight there from the podium, fisting the skies and roaring. Yeah. You know, like it's people just meekly giving you data in quite an affable way. Now, like Tony Blair continues to grow ever more presidential while damning his own party. But at that point, it was like there was a kind of an, an accessible ordinariness to him. Exactly. And, and it was, obviously, it's conveyed in many ways, but it was really big part of how he spoke. I'm aware that uh, there's that phrase, isn't there, to, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and I bring mm. everything down to voices. I mean, I accept there's other stuff going on. But in that in that context, you can, you can sort of see in... Um, Obama was returning, it had elements of a more kind of a classical rhetoric in his style and the way he'd use his voice. Oh, I've like got a point to make here. Yeah. I imagine that he was afforded a, a different kind of exoticism because the narrative of his presence, presidency was he's this African-American uh, and there's always in American politics the idea that that is a, an inclusion from outside of the mainstream, using that to, to, to inflate the idea that the popular mainstream is ethical. Look, after all, we've got an African-American president and I suppose as if, uh, he had a different type of vocal license. I don't know about different kind of political license because there are sort of different constraints. We're talking about a very particular issue, but it's interesting that he had more. What do you, what's that word again? Prosler what? Oh, he's just got a rhetorical prosody. Used the music of his voice quite a lot, but I suppose it was also interesting. Um, Deborah Cameron's done some work on this. A, a woman from Oxford University, a professor at Oxford University, and she's described how if you look both. at both, <laughs> come on. Um, if you look at. Uh, gang culture and you get and you know very particular linguistic use within gangs people use that to mark their membership <laughs> if you look at female members of gangs in the US they will very often be the most kind of ex- like classic users of the <laughs> slang because there might be other stuff they can't get involved in but they can get the words right and That's it's some, it's kind of like marking your I I deserve to be here because I'm doing this right, and maybe if Obama had been less formal in his speech, people would have been more like oh well I just can't do this at all you know, mm. um, you know he was marking I deserve to be here and I can damn well speak <coughs> you into this. 
Right, he was perhaps held to a higher standard. But you were saying they're very... My own voice now is killing me, as you can hear. But like, um, Donald, you were saying like that um, Donald Trump sounds a little bit strangulated and sort of... Un- I mean, his voice, in fact, sat, like he very much positioned himself as I'm going into... I'm draining the swamp or whatever he said. I'm going to go there. I'm going to mix stuff up. And he, even on a vocal quality... Like, the voice is interesting, isn't it? Because the voice, in some ways, is a ghost in the machine. It's the vibration of the vocal cords. It isn't actually there at all, mm. your voice. You're inhabited by this thing. So isn't there something essential about voice? This is part of your, excuse me, essence, who you are. Or vocally, is who you are at your core or your soul or something. It is. There's a, it, there's a real truthiness to voices. Um, if I, when I got here, I was nervous and I was aware when I was first speaking to Jen and when I first met you, I could hear that tension in my voice because it's absolutely, you can't get, it's very hard to get past it. It must be it crippling to know that much about vocal communication and then to still be subject to yes. rules that are beyond that kind of regulation. And oh no, what the hell is this adrenaline doing to my vocal folds? But it's, um, and, it, it's, and that's, that's just true. So if you are in an emotional state, it affects your body and your voice is being made by your body. It sounds stupid, but if I don't use my voice, you won't know anything about what I sound like. I have to do something. Mm. It's an action as much as it is language, the voice. So it's a, uh, it's, you can get information from my face from a photo. If I was asleep, if I was dead, you my face doesn't need to do things for you to well, take a picture of you when you're dead. This has gone very morbid. <laughs> I'll be in touch with the coroner. <laughs> but Something you... dreadful has happened. Come here at once. We need a silent witness. <laughs> But you, 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 you have to do something for a voice to be there. And that's why it is, as you say, it's, it's this weird, ephemeral thing. And it varies so much. And, it's so, and it can be an incredibly strong tell to your emotional state. And one, it can be very hard to work around. So because of because what, what it can do to your body. Mm, it's revealing. Mm. So like the more sort of masking techniques and manipulative techniques that you can get into it, the better. But I suppose that all of the, the in a way, it's hard to hold up an absolute standard because like in other areas, Barack Obama's being judged in a different way to Donald Trump. Nigel Farage is being judged in a different way to Theresa May. I think she's got a bloody horrible voice, Theresa May. I'm not being funny, but like, it was a bit like, it was a bit sort of gargly, strangly, post-coital sort of warble. There's something in there I don't like much. What is it? I think um, it's very very hard to judge voices outside of everything else you know about somebody, so Mm. that's that's a difficult part. Would you say it's an evil voice? (laughs) (laughs) It's got that kind of cracked bell quality, like there's a... I feel like she's striving to do something with her voice that she's not quite landing on, and that's yeah, not. Yeah, I bet she's having them lessons. Aren't you know, when yeah. people get really famous, like they go, "You're gonna have to stop talking like that, mate. You're prime minister now." <laughs> what? So what? I'm gonna carry on being me. <laughs> it's it's really interesting um, listening to Margaret Thatcher now because she was told expressly told you speak to you know women speak with pitch to two eyes speak lower men men won't take you seriously and when you listen to her now all you can hear is the effort she's taking her voice down to somewhere where she probably didn't really want to be and that's the majority of the oddness you hear the falseness i've been speaking like that sort of thing and down here i can't even get as low down as thatcher (laughs) yeah she i do remember that so these things so the very fact that there's so much effort expended on it means that it is a, a real thing. Mm, it, it's a huge factor. I can think of, um, you know, significant politicians of the past few years who've been largely undone by aspects that people have heard in their voice and that they haven't been able to work around. Who like? 
Well, Ed Miliband would be an example right. of someone oh, yeah. who I don't, he's, it seems like an God, excellent no, listen, man. Because he sounds a bit what jittery, was it? Oh, bloody hell! Oh, 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 just spilled it down my buttons. Quite, quite nasal quality yeah. to his voice, and quite. Um, <laughs> broadcast this. Go <laughs> on. Quite, he, 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 it, it sounded like it was difficult for him to speak. No, normally. He sounded scared of his voice. That's, I think, he the thing that was... scared of his own voice. So I've worked with someone... Hello? With ah! <laughs> <laughs> who said that? Oh, no, it's happening again. Listen. <clears throat> he sounded like someone who kind of knew that people were going to be critical of his voice when he started oh, talking. No, it's sad. It's not good. That makes me bad for it's, him. It does not... It's not I making that me, election for him. Not giving me... <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> you should no, have, just trying to have a bit of fun. Well, I, um, I've worked with a... a performance poet who yes. actually has a very similar voice to Ed Miliband and he does poetry out you know he's out on the streets doing poetry doing and, and never never goes oh it's a bit nasal I don't think people are enjoying this because he's just I'm doing my thing and I really wished Ed Miliband could just love his voice and forget about what people might say about it because actually it was him sounding anxious about his voice that, see, that was often the thing you were picking up on like how you lose an erection if you think about it too much sorry I said that now like uh, <laughs> could we have a listen to Theresa May and then uh, Jeremy Corbyn here they are in Parliament we we're going to hear Theresa May's voice, which Sophie Scott has already said she dislikes. Mr Speaker, as you might know, it's my birthday today. And, uh, the Prime Minister has already given me a huge birthday present, so could I press her for another present? Would she support the reopening of Wellingborough Prison uh, as part of this excellent programme, or would she rather just sing happy birthday? Prime Minister! I say to my honourable friend, I'm very happy to wish him a very happy birthday today, many happy returns. I hope that Mrs Bone is going to treat the occasion in an appropriate manner and... uh, uh... (laughs) That's a sex quip. What we've heard there is a sex quip, Sophie Scott. That's (laughs) a sex quip. (laughs) (laughs) There is some... I mean... it feels unfair to criticise people's voices because we've kind of got what we've got. And we've, right, it's like criticising someone's foot. But it's it, there's a there, there is a sort of. I don't like your foot, Matt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I wore shoes that were too tight. I can't tell you exactly what's happening, but there's something going on that a couple of points, and even in that joke where she there's a sort of like a tense sound in her vocal folds, mm. it's giving a weird sort of odd. It's what I can't do an impersonation of it. Anne Widdicombe does it a lot. It's quite a posh way of speaking. You think that, all right, so of course, all of this stuff, there's obviously a neurological component to laughter. We have discussed this, but there's an anatomical component, of course, to voice. It's something that's happening at the level of the vocal cords, and you think that sometimes it's a little strangulated. How you hold, well, you know, bearing in mind everything about your voice is reflecting a lot of complex stuff about you, but actually, big differences do come in, and how you use your your larynx, your vocal folds. So um, that's coming in in terms of just what have you got. So men have larger vocal folds that are thicker. So just like a larger musical instrument, they make a lower sound. And um, <laughs> Gareth also... plays French horn. The <laughs> producer of this show, Gareth Roy, plays French horn. So I just gave him a little look then because I knew he'd go. be thinking, I know about this. <laughs> and But even then, if you... Um, if you hold your vocal folds slightly differently, so I, I'm right now doing something called modal voice, and they're just, just you know, that, that's how, how that's how mean? I mean. You're using tricks. How I am vibrating the vocal folds. So all you do to vibrate them is you bring them together, and yeah. then you're, you're you're using your chest actually to produce a very finely controlled flow of air out, so they flap back and forth and make a sound, just like Gareth playing his French horn when he's doing the same thing at his lips. That's what he can play. 
<laughs> so you've got this you've got this musical sound here, but in fact, even how you if you hold them under a slightly different tension, and I'm gonna now I'm doing something called creaky voice and creaky That's voice. jagger voice. It's, oh no! And it's it's actually holding the vocal folds in a uh, slightly slacker way, so they vibrate differently, right, and you get so. this. You get something that sort of sounds a bit more laid back to us. Actually, although it's also a very posh way of speaking. Uh, David hello. Cameron had an incredibly creaky voice. You know, he did, didn't it's, he? Did he? That's huge, and it's a massive part of American accents. So it's actually one of the main one of the main places where you'll find creaky voices. Hold on, US. what's going on with my voice? Right, here I am. This is me just talking now. I'm trying not to be self-conscious. I'm trying to be a normal man. I have got a little bit of water caught on the Tom and Jerry punch bag. <clears throat> Let me just get that off. You know Tom and Jerry punch bag? I think that's the proper name. I've got a bit of water caught on the Tom and Jerry punch bag. You have a very interesting voice because you really do use melody a great deal, and oh, obviously you you don't. Um, New Jesus, here Thank comes you. in comes the scientist to tell you that Jesus. you also speak quite quickly, Thank but it actually combines to give quite. A, it's it's a Christ-like. pleasant way. Of speaking. <laughs> Probably Christ up Probably. there on Mount Sinai. He <laughs> would have been good at talking, wouldn't he, Jesus? He must have been. He everyone was well into it. Let's face it, it caught on. Yeah, it would be. And there's actually something really so. central about humans standing up and talking and people, or doing things with their voices. People like watching it. We like watching somebody speak with skill. We like watching somebody sing. We like watching somebody beatbox. We like watching actors. We, we actually, there's something really entrancing about the performance of the voice. What do you think about Hitler then? Not his policies, let's face <laughs> it now. We can see that he was a cruel man. Yes. But like his vocal style. Putting that to one side. For a moment, the <laughs> awful, the awful right. crime. He seems to have been a very engaging public speaker. <laughs> like, there's a wonderful <laughs> Quentin Crisp quote. So, like, someone asked him, "Did Hitler have charisma?" And Quentin Crisp said, "Well, I suppose he must have done. Otherwise, you wouldn't have an awful lot of people now of a certain age wandering around Germany saying, well, I really don't know what came over me.'" <laughs> so he was obviously able to, yeah, create a very like, and, and and the same man, Quentin Crisp, offered this definition of charisma: the ability to influence without logic. Mm. So, yes, in, in, in interesting definition of that so like because like when i watch hitler which i only do for science against hitler obviously like uh, like but like you think i don't know if i'd like someone going on like that at me he's really ranting and raving he's seldom mellow mm, I, well i think i suppose you just get these big fashions as well so we've seen it recently in politics big changes in what we think sounds like appropriate you just don't get neil kinnock style rhetoric in government now for us here we've moved very quickly through that and you you get these big changes. You even see it in acting. If you go back, you know, over the last century, styles of what looked like naturalistic acting change a lot. Mm. So what we want to see in a talker can be highly variable. It, it, you get that in everything. That's what humans do. What we, our cultures learn and develop and change. We don't tend to sit with just one thing going, this is the best it will ever be. What are the external factors that are changing something as seemingly fundamental as natural? Like, you know, like <laughs> this is what is natural. If natural alters, because natural means essential. Natural means without inflection. Natural means absolute and total. And if that changes as a result of acculturation, what is being expressed? I mean, one of the reasons I'm interested in voice, you know, there's that, sure, that sure, Juliet says in Romeo and Juliet, like voice, uh, voice be breath and breath be life. That it's like it's something about essence and like in the beginning there was the word or the vibration and like they i've heard these interesting sounds from deep space that sound like gongs vibrating into the infinite that there is something like in the way that we communicate that is connected to truth very very deeply and if this is something that can be manipulated and managed and used is its power could potentially be limitless well, it can be, and you can certainly think of examples where we get caught up in this element of performance. So I suppose one thing is true, it's all a performance. Me talking to you now, I am performing being Sophie. There's never a some 
abstract notion of a Sophie voice. There's always me doing it for someone somewhere in some particular context. Right. So I'm never speaking without reference to that. And then there's the performance where we, as a group of people, decide to shut up and let some people or person on stage do something with their voices where yeah. we then engage with that. And what's expressed in that changes. So we know over a lifetime, all of us tra- talk differently as we get older because the people around us change how they speak and we pick up on that. Even the Queen speaks differently to how she used to speak. Her vowels Does she now, Your Majesty? She's changed it. She's chopped it up a bit. She looks, and it sounds, it sounds like a continuous process of everybody becoming a bit less posh. That's what ah. you, kind of, you go back to old um, DVD. You know, even don't have to go back very far. Like TV programs in the nineties, you watch the news, and everyone sounds incredibly posh, and they will have sounded much less Hello. posh than people in the seventies. Welcome to know. the news, exactly. you fucking peasants. <laughs> Sit down and tolerate this <laughs> half truths. Well, I tell you what, that is. Do you think? Well, I won't tell you because you're an expert, and I'm just some bloke who's only thought about it for half an hour. But what I reckon it is is that because of mass communication, we're all aware of broader context and different variables and are able to make different comparisons. And now there's a sort of an emerging narrative that power is corrupt and power is connected to, I don't know, poshness, elitism. So there's a sort of like, and myself, my accent changes, I'm terrible, me. I bounce up and down that class ladder like a little cheese football. Like, you know, like, like when I'm sort of around, like sort of, like my girlfriend really torments me for like, she's like how much I love working class men. Like we, we went to... I think it was called Juicens to pick up some gravel. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that that's my life. And there was this bloke there called Mark, and he came over and wanted a photo. And she goes, "You love that 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 bloke wanted a photo." And I was like, well, "And I said goodbye to him in an overly elaborate way, and I even waved at him a second time for <laughs> went back for another bite of the cherry out of the window. <laughs> bye bye, Mark. No, actually, I didn't go like that. I went like this. See you later, mate. See you later, Mark. All right, Tada. Be lucky, son. See you later, mate. All right, Tada, pal. Right. I almost sold him half a pound of tomatoes. I was getting so bloody cockney. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. What's going on? Well, it, that's exactly... You, you, we change our voices. Uh, interestingly, the more... We, no, let's start again. We have to change our voices to talk to somebody. So as soon as we started talking to each other, without agreeing to do so, we started to breathe together. Because you have to do that to have a conversation. You have to coordinate how you breathe. Because that lets you time voices going back and forth, the turn-taking conversation. It's so, so physical. It really is. And we also match the... Pros- the, the the pitch and prosody of our voices and the rhythm of our voices we start to bring together because you've got this mm. very rhythmic it's like it is like a dance conversation and you can only do that dance if you start to align your behavior so that has to happen to talk and then the more you like someone the more you will start to do other things to change your voice to bring it towards them so there are oh, studies no. that have shown that the more a man likes a woman the more he will raise the pitch of his voice to be nearer to hers just now, just make everybody super self-conscious about how oh, they're coming on the show, Sophie. It's, it's been, been a, great. It's been a real treat. <laughs> <laughs> I've done everything I've said. And you'll believe that you'll start to use the same words. You'll start to use the same pronunciations. You even start to use the same grammar as oh, each God. other. And the, and the more you like, the but more you do I suppose that's this. communication, yeah. isn't it? That's the whole point of it, is that yeah. we're trying to make a connection with one another. We're trying to defy the material prison of our anatomy, yeah. of feeling trapped. And it's the voice, this thing that is n- not really wholly or truly you, but a vibration emanating from you, that is your emissary that you send out in the world to make connections and communication. God, I'm good at this one. I'm just making this shit up. <laughs> My God! But it, it and it's always there. So it's always expressing like a lot of you that you don't realise, and it's also expressing how you feel about the people that you're talking to, fairly unavoidably. Oh no, I'm going to start watching myself back on the thing because one day we do a bit of funny bit in my stand-up show, right, where I talk about when I did this interview with Jeremy Paxman, and one of the things that we make jokes about. 
I mean, by we, I mean me, because uh, <laughs> because I'm mentally ill. I consider myself without nine people. Well, actually, people I work with are in the room. Um, like, is that I laugh about how I go through these different personas when dealing with Jeremy Paxman. I start very light and affable. Then there's a moment where I go really serious, and mm. then I get very sort of I, like I start re- deliberately, like well, not delib- deliberately, but unconsciously referencing ethnic speak rhythms, very working class based, because I obviously see myself as speaking on behalf of outsiders and I use it as an attack technique. It's very interesting to watch. And you're marking... Because we can mark similarity with it, you can mark difference. Because I, yeah, right. Because I'm definitely not trying. I don't go, well, Jeremy, that's a good point. I mean, I'd have to say, I'm like, now listen, bruv, I pick you down, I'll strike you up, blah 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 blah. It's like absolutely ridiculous. It's like a grime single. But it's it's still playing. That is that you're abs- you're as marking out your position to him as clearly in how you're doing that well, as well as what you. you're saying. I'm not like, and I don't particularly want to be. You. Oh God, I'm just turning myself on. <laughs> right, so like, that's because so I suppose the like the reason that we wanted to talk to you, Sophie Scott, is for us to understand how. Excuse me, we can use these means of communication: comedy, laughter, and vocal style. Like, uh, oh, oh, yeah, this is good. This is a better question than mine. This is Gareth because I like, yeah, well, this is it's more a succinct way of saying it. What vocal techniques should be aware of? Should we be aware of in the lead up to the election from Theresa May, Corbyn, and other political leaders? What should we watch out for? There's a very strong outbreak of people just going back to the same phrase, strong and stable, ringing Ugh. the election, and just keep saying it. And even with the same project, it's like a, they're just cut and pasting into the stream of speech. It's I hate it. Why is this happening? What's, this, what's the assumption? That I... we've got no attention span, that we're bloody idiots? What's going on? I fear it is. I fear it is. I think there's, a, there's very good evidence that humans are not good at remembering detail. They remember gist. Right, so... stop just remembering the gist, you bloody idiots. They think that's it. I think they're trying to influence the gist and oh, you can't do that don't we you dare it. influence that gist you let that gist be what it is well you feel like we, we might surely credit us with the ability to understand at least some different words that mean strong and stable you know rather than just repeat just exactly the same because I think people want and variety and fun and colour but no just bombard people into it if people are beleaguered fearful and lost the whole time if you just keep saying strong and stable strong and stable who are you going to vote for strong and stable like, oh it's out of order and if there's one of the odd things about people using lightheartedness or comedy in their voice or in their approach, particularly in politics, is it can play hard well and it can also go horribly wrong. You know, there is a, exactly like you said right at the top, there are situations where it's simply inappropriate and people will revo- sort of recoil from it like that, yeah. that wasn't right then there. But in other situations, it can be an incredibly efficient way of looking confident and able and like, do you know what? I can do this. Yeah, because what you're saying is I'm not defined by this context, but that is a risky game to say that I'm outside of this context. Yeah. It's like it's about power, obviously, isn't it? Because if people say it's not appropriate for you to say that in this context, they're saying I'm in charge of the context yeah and if you say i disagree with you then you're saying i'm in charge of the context it's a real game it is and i think sometimes one of the things that we like about people who would be prepared to use not necessarily like, you very rarely see somebody in politics who just you know he's like all party all the time it just doesn't work but drops would would drop into it occasionally when it feels like oh it could have gone a different way and then they've just sort of thrown a um something slightly lighter hearted there that's kind of it's not just that oh i'm in here for for giggles but i'm kind of confident enough to let you know that this is easy this is not a thing to worry about i can do this and of course that might still be a bad thing i'm not saying it's a signify that someone's good mm. but it's certainly 
one of the things that is sorely lacking, I think, at the moment. People are quite seem quite frightened of what they're saying and of going off message. I think and a then... climate of fear is what ge- is prohibitive and restrictive. I bet fear literally affects us anatomically and constricts the vocal cords, and socially it does. That people are less likely, you know, like when I, when I do live shows now, and as I go out of uh, metropolitan areas, I think there's a nervousness when I talk about. Uh, Islam, when I talk about like sort of subjects that we've been uh, taught to understand as contentious. Yeah, and we therefore shouldn't laugh around them because I don't know what I'd be looking like that's, agreeing with. That's and, where yeah. we got to laugh though, isn't it? That's yeah. that, that's where the communication becomes valuable by what we include in what's humorous. Now, of course, we won't be derisory, dismissive or cruel about things that are important, yeah. but I think humour precisely builds these bonds as it does between a, a father and a baby. It does between whole communities, recognising that ultimately we're the same. I mean, I've, I, my, I uh, posit... Dear Professor Sophie, that what comedy is continually doing is it's sort of it's shifting the frame. And we say, like, oh, here we are, you and I are having this conversation, making this podcast, and then comedy says, but we're going to die. <laughs> and this is a very, very temporary arrangement between us. And if we don't acknowledge the truth of the fact that we can't hold this together, mm. that there are ele- powerful elements of not only chaos, of, of entropy and function that are going to mean that everything's going to end. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. And like, I think comedy is an expression that I'm all right with that. I'm okay with it. And I think that like I use this a lot, but like Tommy Cooper's act is the reason I think it's beautiful is because Tommy Cooper, British comedian, uh, 30, 40, my God, perhaps 50 years ago. And like, uh, like sort of did a a faux magic act where things went wrong. And I think the reason it's so ingenious is because it's like his intention is that he's not even come on the stage to try and be funny. He's come out to try and do this magic act and everything will be okay if only this magic act goes all right. And the magic act never does. And that's where the intersection of comedy happens there. And if you look at sort of like musical entertainers like Frankie Howard or Kenneth Williams, they're always glancing to the side. There's, and Harry Hill actually uses that sort of second camera that he talks into, yeah. saying that there's another layer to reality. That there's a connection, I think, between comedy and the trickster. And the trickster is forever saying, there's, this isn't the absolute context. There is yeah. another world. There is another world. And in the words of Morrissey, there must be. There must be. You know, like, so that's what I, I think is important about comedy. Do you now think I'm clever? <laughs> Um, I, you're, you're doing an MA at SOAS, you must be, but it's um, no, clearly it's it extremely money. well point point. <laughs> I pay them, I literally pay them to go. It is very interesting if you look at the history of human language, and of course we're reliant on people writing stuff down because words don't stay around if you say them. But if you look at wherever you find people writing in human history, you find them writing down jokes. People have been making jokes as far back as we can find written words. They've been writing graffiti on walls. Um, There's a piece of Babylonian papyrus with a really weak joke about how to make a pharaoh go fishing. Um, You put naked women in fishing nets. And and then maybe it works better in 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 ancient Egyptian. (laughs) Maybe there's a pun in there in ancient Egyptian. Do you think? Well, there's a. It's on its own. It's not enough. It's not not enough. Put women in fishing nets. (laughs) Get out! You're fired. (laughs) Could I come into the pyramid? No, you bloody can't. Now walk like an Egyptian. Get out of here. (laughs) There's a whole um, Roman book called The Laughter Lover. Which is, you know, it's preserved all the jokes. And it is interesting because they have the structure and appearance of jokes and they're not funny. Jim Bowen actually did an act where he read out from it and he had to do a lot of work. A lot of work. Jim's one of the greats. (laughs) um, If he had to sing for his supper. And it's because, of course, the, the, the content changes. And I think a lot of the time, science, when it tries to look at comedy, 
gets caught up on that because you can't find something that's always funny for everybody everywhere. That one glance at that Babylonian joke that somebody that was so good they wrote it down um, suggests that. But we don't want to forget this thing <laughs> about the ages. women in the <laughs> go and get mash up some paper, get some ink, which is probably complicated. And then so you've got this, but the the point is that people were doing it. We have used humour probably from as soon as we had words. We were laughing before we had words and we were probably using words to try and get to laughter and maybe in a playful way or whatever way since then. But then you get this very interesting development of it as an art form because you see this in humans. You know, we're endlessly, endlessly innovating and producing stuff that doesn't immediately kind of necessarily get you fed or keeps you somewhere Mm. to sleep, but which is fun and interesting and engaging. When you see modern humans emerge, you just get this explosion of stuff. And comedy, I think, and humour is one of those things. And you start to get the role of the person, like you say, the trickster, the person who's the jester, the person who has the role of kind of controlling that. And it's a very, very interesting evolution. It's, it, it's worth bearing in mind that stand-up comedy is an incredibly new art form. It only really existed as we would recognise it with, you know, some one person on stage talking to the audience since a really unfortunate man called Frank Fay, who was around, he was around sort of in the 20s and 30s. He was the first guy who had the sort of hotspur to not um, have another person on stage with him. To, to do whom a he didn't, exactly. there was He didn't have a feed. Ooh, and he didn't have comedy thanks. costumes. And he didn't. He kind of came on stage. He's just a little bone <laughs> idol. I'm not going to have a bloke and I've not put anything on. <laughs> and he had this kind of like... Um, he, it, it's, you can find some clicks of him on YouTube because it's very... It's, it doesn't look, again, like the strongest material, but it absolutely slayed. And he had this kind of confidence to do this. And it was that was part of it. He considered himself to be a lot better than the other comedians well, around. Well, he must have done, because they just have the balls yep. to sort of go out there and go, I don't need you no more, like to the feed guy. And yeah. then not to the contrary, he must have been magnificent. We're lucky he chose comedy well, and not politics. <laughs> well, he did actually also choose politics. So the oh, reason why Frank. he's not more... Oh, Frankie. He's not more frequently discussed as he was a massive Nazi. <laughs> continued to It wasn't be all so. the ups- upside with Frank. <laughs> so the he's very good this guy yeah hold on a second this joke here (laughs) slaughter all non-christian people kill the yeah the gypsies have got them right yeah no frank that's not gonna fly you're gonna need to get other geese you used to work with i won't work with them anymore why (laughs) what soul no more oh frank you're a horrible nazi he, he was running pro-Hitler rallies in New York <laughs> after the Second the World last War. <laughs> after. After, when pretty much people had felt that was done and dusted. I'm here. <laughs> I've got a thing to say to you. This Hitler fella, he ain't bad at all bad. <laughs> Boo! Shut your fucking face. <laughs> so he, he's largely not remembered fondly. <laughs> it's a shame, that... really, that old Nazi Frank <laughs> is not better commemorated. But if you look at Bob Hope... You can see in Bob Hope's act, he was completely influenced by his voice and sort of the Ooh. appearance and that kind of sophisticated gentleman act. And Bob was the great master. So you can see the roots of it there. So I think with that, that hat on, you can sort of see stand-up comedy as being another manifestation in our culture of this endless drive for humour, for comedy. And we're 
still, I think, negotiating the role of what that means. What's this discussion about, like, uh, the written word versus oratory? Because, like, I've heard that, like, there's some people, like, this this American, he calls himself American Indian activist, sadly deceased, called Russell Mead, says, like, that, uh, he says, like, there's this beautiful speech which I read written down, but it begins thusly. You, uh, you may very well be reading this, but I'm speaking it. He goes, you European people, one of the things you've given us is the written word. Well, ours is an oral tradition, and we believe in the truth of speech and the power of speech. Then I read some other thing about Socrates saying that it was sort of more important, the spoken word, than the written word, because there is an essential truth that can only, I suppose, relate to the voice and the presence. What does this all mean? Well, I think that's exactly it, because there's the person there. You've got that. You're reacting to more than just the words they're saying, and you can't not. You're making assumptions about that person. If you couldn't see me, you would probably have an idea of what I look like based on what I sound like. You could be utterly wrong. But we do that all the time. We're always trying to work out who people are, where they're from. All this At the same time as they're talking to us, we're adding in all this other stuff about who we think they must be based on what they sound like. And it gives a power and an interpretation and sometimes a truth to voices that I think does give it a different kind of weight. And the written word is amazing. But you can see and you look at people trying to write texts or emails or the way they try and put stuff back in to kind of try and give their character with emojis or dancing. Yeah, I can or... see that the emergence of emojis is because of the limitations of the spoken word. I mean, you remember how like you know, it used to be like there was too many problems around like miscommunication around text and email. And like and I, it was forever happening with me that I was upsetting people. Unlike when I'm on telly or radio, I stay right out of trouble. <laughs> No, no, that was funny. Come on, you know what I meant. <laughs> Smiley face, <laughs> apology face. Um, like, but like, sort of, I can see that. Yes, there's a level of sophistication that the written word can't deliver on this. You know, perhaps in the hands of Proust. And there are other advantages. So the written word, you can sit there and do some sort of compositional work on it before you deliver it to the world. You know, when you start talking, you've got to keep going. Yeah. I've launched on a sentence, and I've somehow got to make my way to the end of it. Perhaps so. Frank Fry weren't a racist. Oh, this is going bloody well. And another thing, that Mr. Hitler, let's give him another. Boo, no, Frank, no, ah, shut your face. <laughs> no, but he wasn't like that. He was more of a smarmy really was, type yeah. of character. <laughs> it was really unpleasant. Oh, yeah, well, there it's you go. Shame. You can't be a Nazi. Go on, what's this here, gal? Oh, yeah. We had this thing, uh, Professor Sophie, that uh, it ain't helping the satirising Trump, that it makes him more cosy and likeable and affable somehow, and it's, it's not a monstrification. It's a sort of affable. I think it is sometimes the case that we can mistake laughing at somebody for being like the end of the critical work we need to do and associated with them so it is really interesting that uh, was it John Oliver a couple of years ago was going oh please run for presidency it's going to be so funny and it was funny there was some amazing and it was also actually happening Mm. and then it's actually coming it's not all that funny now it's happening I'm still trying to keep it humorous like just by by looking at it as if it's not real but it is real, isn't it? Real, yeah. This is all ha- actually happening as far as we know. It's actually there. And that's now, you know, it, it, you can make... It's interesting to see how people make very good at making jokes at the stuff around um, uh, Trump, you know, the, all the Sean Spicer mm. stuff that they're doing so well on SNL. It's harder because it's already absurd. And point, You know, we've already made all the jokes there were to make about him before he became president. And it seems, you know, that it's almost like a... A limit to the how far we can go with it. If you look at you know popular sites like The Onion, are not they're making funny jokes, but actually none of them are landing on Trump because maybe that's already it, it, we're already too far into it to be able to have any distance enough to make jokes about it. Or maybe it's just that it doesn't matter. You know, if you're making jokes, you're still talking about him, and he's still winning. 
Evidently, there was a degree of sophistication to that campaign that obviously the sort of popular press were not aware of. And I think it's sort of like more, as well as communicative, it was statistical. I think they understood that these people in this area want this message. Give them that message. It don't matter what the people over there think. They're never going to vote for you anyway. Forget them. I mean... You can sort of see as well, sort of communicate the relationship between communication and truth versus authenticity. Like you know, like the like you know, sort of politics has changed in that it seems to be this peculiar this sort of dance and manipulation of power now. Like I, it's notable, I think, that there's a sort of now a kind of redundancy to UKIP. You kind of think UKIP's done its job. The Conservative yeah. Party is UKIP now, so it doesn't really. You don't really require one. Farage has sort mm. of disappeared. Like and and there's a sort of a tenor to uh, it's interesting that i would use that uh, kind of a vocal uh, word uh not just to impress you but also because it seems right that there's or there is that there's something tonally about the conservative party that seems to be acknowledging exclusion that the anti-immigration rhetoric the sort of vague xenophobia and of course the sort of ex- uh, uh, removal from the european union it's sort of it's present it's present now politically there doesn't seem that the, to be any need for it now for UKIP, I mean, primarily. I, I entirely agree. It's um, It's been an interesting cycle to watch it happen. I mean, there was something similar happened in the 70s with the really far-right organisations, like, uh, which are essentially expressly incorporated into Margaret Thatcher's version wow, of conservatism. Really? And we've well, seen like, a like, similar... Like the NF and stuff. Yeah, and the, yeah, the, um, the British National Party. That kind of, you know, and they were pretty full-on. And there was in a kind of an extension of what the Conservative Party broadly covered as a remit that just started just incorporate it. And they did indeed go away as gangs of skinheads at rallies, but they then became the government. So, you know, the <laughs> got rid of those was... gangs of skinheads yeah. at rallies. Oh, thank God. They're the government now. Yeah, largely still hell. agreeing with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, that, that's very interesting. Uh, Sophie, 68 minutes. We've done... This has already been longer than I anticipated. I really enjoyed the analysis of the politicians. I liked the role of laughter. Should we try and find something optimistic to end upon? I mean, if <laughs> laughter and, com- and communication is ultimately about creating c- a community, then perhaps there will always be... There has to be a role for authenticity, doesn't there? There has to be a way that we can communicate essential truths and it will bring people together. The answer can't be this reductive, repetitive, simplistic, disingenuous politics that's come to govern our times. This kind of casual, half-hearted, almost nihilism of of the Trump presidency. The madness of the lurch to the right across the world. Is there another way? Is there another way? I mean, I something that you've kept talking about in your... That was really badly put, wasn't it? Something you've kept talking you've kept about. Banging but, yeah. on about, <laughs> harping on. You keep coming on. back to love. And I think there's... I, I think we haven't been very good at recognising the importance of love. Oh, God, I'm, I'm not even sound like... Why people you shouldn't be embarrassed about that? Why, why? See, that's interesting. It's been removed from the <laughs> from the centric debate. It, we've been told, like, don't talk about love. It's stupid. It's childish. I mean, this attack on uh, Jeremy Corbyn, mutton-headed mugwump by Boris Johnson, where saying stuff like that, you know, if you're at Eton, saying things like that probably gets you to the top. Probably get first dibs on the fags if you can come up with a little lyric like that. But like saying that, oh, he's too compassionate. He's too kind. Mm. He wouldn't nuke people willy-nilly. It's like saying that there's no room for love or compassion or, or, or connection like that these things are sort of they have no place in the in power uh, but they're, they're no absolutely central to our lives so all here's an example that all the evidence now seems to suggest that losing your hearing in adulthood 
is a significant risk for dementia. Whoa, really? Okay. And it's a significant risk. Is why pay attention to how loud your headphones are when you're listening to music. But it's um, it's interesting because it doesn't seem to be because it's happening through the same mechanism. It's not the same thing that's affecting your ears as affecting your brain. It seems to be because losing your hearing and not necessarily getting access to ways of restoring that takes you out of social interaction. You disconnect and you go mad. And you well, your brain does not work as well. Mm. Everything that we know about human brains say they evolve in interactions, they develop in interactions. Everything your baby's learning about the world, most of it she's learning in interactions with you. Oh, she, God. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, but that's the, and it continues being the case. It's our main way of making maintaining social bonds remains talking to each other. Even in a world where you could do it all with text, we still go face to face. We still talk to each other, and that is essential to our function as humans. And I think we are getting less and less kind of um, well. Even the reason that we we don't seem to be able to get this message across, you know, that the hearing loss is really risky for you, not just because it's a pain in the neck to lose your hearing, but it could really manifestly affect the shape of your life. We're not even taking that seriously as a problem. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's one to watch out for then. Uh-huh. And it's that it's the link, the social link, the human contact that that's actually preventing that I think we start to need to acknowledge more. And I'm going to, obviously, I'm saying so from a scientific perspective because I think in science we tend not to take these things seriously. We study speech without ever considering that we talk to each other. We mm. study emotions and never look at laughter. You know, we, we just don't go in that direction very often but I think it might be a wider part of our debate about who we are as humans because you know to be massively influenced by your interview with Adam Curtis that the rise of individualism I think sometimes takes the emphasis off what we're doing to each other and more onto us somehow powering through life on our own towards death mm. and actually it's not trivial that's that the, the contact we have with other people is not a meaningless aspect and ex- a little bit of you know cheesecake on our life it's it's actually essential to being a human oh that's beautiful what a lovely way to end professor sophie scott we must communicate we must connect there's more to life than being an individual that's a beautiful message thank you very much thank you thank you for getting under the skin with me professor sophie scott this show was sponsored by me, Old Russ, and my rebirth tour. If you want to come and see me, why wouldn't you? Go to russellbrand.com. Oxford, 10th of May, Southport, 23rd of May. Go to russellbrand.com for details. If you want a discount, you can't have one because we haven't got one of those codes. Just buy the things, for heaven's sake. If you like this show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes. Why can't I say that word? Uh, and give it five stars, please. And what's the other one if you've got a Samsung phone? Stitcher. Or go to Stitcher and review it there. We would like to be good on Stitcher as well, would we, if they've got a chart? Oh, I'd love to be at the top of that chart. I don't like to see it plunging down the charts like a little stone, like a trussed-up body tied to a rock sinking down to the bottom of the River Jordan. I don't like that, darling. Well, thanks. That's as much podcast as one man can possibly do. Goodbye. <laughs>